I need more to get this in the paper, I said. I've told you what happened, he said. Get the money to my brother. I never said I was going to give you proof of anything. You're the reporter. It's your job to fill in the blanks, if you can. Hello and welcome to this episode of Season 3 of Ear Movies Murder Ballads. I think some of the best crime stories are so good because they set the scene so strongly. Not that I'm comparing them to ear movies, but think of 1940s film noir or Seven or Chinatown. Well, that's what we've tried to do here, both go back in time while also setting each part of the story firmly in its own world. When Nadine Garner agreed to read it, I couldn't have been happier. She totally nailed it. See what you think. Oh, a quick warning, this story discusses some sensitive subjects. Please be mindful of your own mental health and reach out for help if you need to. And now, here's Nadine reading Help. Help. Not guilty, he said. I'd like to say that the words were spoken with strength and passion, with honesty. But they weren't. They were mumbled, quiet. They sounded insincere. Darren Stevens didn't even look up at the judge. She stared at him for a while. His barrister, Tony Wilkins, stood. We were good mates, that's why Joel, my editor, had got me to cover the case. It probably wouldn't have even been covered outside normal court rounds except for the deceased being Alistair Muley, the artist and filmmaker. We'd like to apply for bail, Tony said. The judge was still watching Darren. He glanced up, then back down. He refused to meet her eye. I hadn't reported on many trials, but I could tell that this one wasn't going very well. The judge started flicking through a stack of papers. Henderson? A young man from the Crown Prosecution Office stood. We oppose bail, he said. Mr Stevens doesn't have a stable domestic situation. We feel there's a real and appreciable flight risk. He sat back down. Miss Wilkins? Mr Stevens has lived in a boarding house in Cleveland Street, Chippendale for the past nine months. He's paid for his accommodation reasonably regularly. He tends to vigorously defend the charges against him. Tony sat. I don't think anyone in the court believed Darren could do anything vigorously. The judge was shuffling her papers. There were lots of other shufflings going on around the court too, now that I listened more closely. It was such an open and shut case, I don't think there was any doubt that Darren had killed him. He lived two blocks from Muley. He couldn't account for his whereabouts at the time of the shooting, an eyewitness saw him on the street two doors from Muley's house within 15 minutes of the estimated time of death. All that remained to be established was a motive. In the courtroom, the judge sighed. I wondered what she'd choose. Bail refused, she said. We all looked to Darren. His head sank lower, but his hair was over his face so we couldn't see his reaction. The judge stood. We rose as well and watched her leave. Darren was led away. I went over to Tony. How's your head? I asked. We'd had a few wines the night before. Neither of us were in the best state. Tony smiled. She wore her makeup more thickly than I did. Full red lipstick, heavy on the eyeliner too. Hey doll, she said. Yeah, a bit ordinary to be honest. You? I laughed. I'm <laughs> not too bad actually. She looked to the bench. I didn't think the bitch would grant bail, so I didn't push it too hard. She picked up her folders and passed them to her associate. Take these back to Chambers, will you? Then she turned to me. Coffee? She asked. 
There was a place just near the court. All the lawyers used it. We sat on chairs that were too small. They felt like they were too small anyway. You think you can get me an interview? I asked, after our coffees were in front of us. Already arranged, she said. I've got a stack of requests from other reporters. He doesn't want to talk to anyone, but I've convinced him he should see you. It's not like he'll be overwhelmed with other visitors. His parents disowned him years ago. No friends. Even his brother hates him. I owe you one, I said. She smiled. Lippy, doll, I said. She brushed it off her teeth with a napkin. She sipped her coffee and looked around the room. Jesus, I need a holiday, she said. Tom and I have booked Japan for skiing in four weeks, and let me tell you, it can't come soon enough. It took ages to process me so I could get inside the jail. The retinal scanner wasn't working properly. I'd made a joke about it being on the blink, but none of the guards got it. Or maybe they did and preferred not to laugh. Probably it just wasn't that funny. When I finally got through, nearly all the tables were full. Parents, mostly, by the look of them. A few wives with kids, an underdressed girlfriend or two. I sat at table 14, like I'd been told. A couple of minutes later, I heard an electronic buzz as the door opened. I watched as Darren shuffled in. I say shuffled because that's exactly how he walked. He has no pride, I thought. No hope either, possibly and he doesn't care who knows it. He glanced up at me and made his way over. His hair was oily and lank. His face was thin, scarred with the remains of acne. His nose seemed to have had a bit cut off. There was a scar running upward from his top lip. You wouldn't call him attractive. He sat down. Thanks for meeting me, I said. He shrugged but didn't say anything. Want anything from the machines? I asked. Chocolate. I picked up the coins in front of me and went over and brought a couple of bars. He ate the first one very quickly. Did you kill him, Darren? He shook his head. He began to speak, his mouth full of chocolate. I know you won't believe me, but I didn't do it. I wanted to. I'll admit that. He ruined my life. He spoke in an awful whiny nasal drawl. He used what they call a rising inflection, where his sentences went up in tone at the end. He scratched a scab on his cheek. How did he ruin your life, Darren? I asked. He didn't respond immediately. Instead, he tore open the second chocolate bar and took a bite. Only then did it seem to occur to him that there were two of us sitting there. Oh, want some? He asked, holding it towards me. The end piece was actually wet with his saliva. Oh, no, I'm good. I said. The back of his hand was discoloured from a homemade tattoo, although it had faded beyond interpretation. He grinned. At least he appeared to have all his teeth, even if they were yellow. The front two top ones were prominent. Buck teeth, we called them at school. I'm not usually a person who judges someone by their physical appearance, but in the lottery of life, Darren hadn't drawn well. If I tell you what happened, he began... He looked around and started again, this time speaking more quietly. If I tell you what he did to me, will you pay me? How much for an exclusive? I asked. He shrugged. Two grand? It was actually pretty cheap. I don't want the money, though, 
I want you to give it to me brother. I checked him out before I'd come. He was loaded. Perhaps I looked surprised at Darren's request. The money has to go to him, he said. Sure, I said. I don't care where it goes. We've only got a short time. When did it start? He looked down at the table, picked up the chocolate wrappers and scrunched them up in his hand. I met Ali when I was 12, he said. You mean Alistair Muley, I asked. He nodded. Dickhead that he was. Yeah, I was only a kid. I thought he was everything then, like I loved him. You were in love with him? He nodded. Well, that's what I thought anyway. My dad wasn't around, mum was an alco. My grandfather's idea of a good time was to give me a boot up the arse to see how far I'd fly. Alistair was the first person who seemed to care about me. He looked up at me. You surprised? He asked. I didn't always look like this, you know. I used to be pretty, hell. We're all pretty when we're that age. He looked towards the vending machine again, but I didn't have any more change. Are you you telling me that Alistair Muley abused you? I asked. His eyes returned to the table between us. You said you were 12? You said you were in love with him, that he cared for you. Did he abuse you? Now he looked up again, slowly. His lips were suddenly cruel. I should be careful, I thought. He has been harmed and this has taught him to be dangerous. He was the only one to love me. And maybe the only one I've ever loved. Unless you've been in that situation, you'll never understand. I can see it was abuse now, although it took me years to realise it. That was long after he'd gotten rid of me. After he'd thrown me to the curb. Stopped taking my calls, stopped answering his door. I didn't get what had happened until I heard about Gideon. That was the name of the kid he replaced me with. Another 12-year-old with another sob story. If this was true, I had my first front page. But before I could print it, I'd need to have some proof. You're wondering how you can prove it, aren't you? He asked me. Gideon's dead, of course. There are a whole lot more than just me and Gideon, but most of the rest are gone too. Heroin or AIDS or hanging ourselves. Will you, um, go on the record? I asked him. He smiled, his dirty teeth, hard, crooked-lipped smile. Why would I do that? I say a word against Ali. It gives me the biggest motive in the world. Practically proves I'm the one who killed him. So did you? I asked. His head sank again. I wanted to, but he ruined my life, he said. But did you do it? I told you, no. I told Tony that, but she's just doing her legal eight hours. She could defend me properly if she wanted, but she doesn't want to. I need more to get this in the paper, I said. I've told you what happened, he said. Get the money to my brother. I never said I was going to give you proof of anything. You're the reporter, it's your job to fill in the blanks, if you can. He stood up. He couldn't stand straight. He didn't fit his skin. He was broken inside. He was a shell. I need more to get this in the paper, I said, still hoping I could retrieve a headline. He stole my eyes, he said quietly. I didn't know what he meant. I watched him shuffle back towards the door. 
He stood there until the lock was released. Then he walked through it without looking back. How could you steal someone's eyes, I wondered. And like a jolt, it hit me. And I knew. Joel was waiting to hear how the interview went, so I called him quickly. Then I went to a bar. I stayed for two drinks while I thought. Then I Ubered to the gallery. I wanted to be sure. The painting was pride of place in the contemporary section. I don't know much about art, but I know I don't like it. Well, that's not true, of course. There are some things I like. But it's what the funny kid in school used to say. I suppose there's a reason they're called masterpieces. The same difference that makes one person a bumbling amateur and another a genius. One glance at Adonis revealed the truth of Alistair Muley and the work itself. A genius and his masterpiece. It was beautiful. Mesmerising. Tantalising. The journey. Jesus, you could lose yourself in adjectives looking at it. It was a genuine artistic treasure. And now I could see the truth of Darren's statement. Adonis had his eyes, without a doubt. A version of them anyway. A forever youthful, deep version. They flirted with you and lured you and drew you in and pushed you away at the same time. Guilt and innocence in equal measure. Care and harm combined. Muley had had his imitators, but even he himself had never managed to replicate the magic of Adonis. The painting had put him on the world stage. It had given him his reputation. There had always been rumours about his feelings for young boys. He'd argued objectively and in general terms, the 70s were a different time with different standards, he said. Artists were expected to explore boundaries. He always said, explore, and never said he'd crossed them. He'd played the semantics and he had Hayden at his side by then. Hayden, the perfect young lover, pretty, funny, fragile, likeable. If you hurt Alistair, you hurt Hayden and no one ever wanted to hurt Hayden. The speculation had always been that Hayden was the muse for Adonis, but the dates weren't right, and while there'd been talk of divine intervention, of fate and of destiny, now I knew there was another truth. I went back to the office and started writing up the story. I didn't have an angle I was happy with yet. I waited for the flow, but all I had were a bunch of disjointed paragraphs. I didn't mind. Sometimes that's how it happened. There was still time enough for structure. Joel came in. How's it going? He said. Sorry, it's still a list of events, not a story, I said. I'm moving the deadline back. Danny's got this great piece on a chess-playing dog. I may have looked confused. Not my idea, higher up, number two. To address our circulation concerns, I asked. Something like that, he said. I don't care, I said. It's good, actually. I need more time. That's my girl, he said. I'm not your girl anymore, I reminded him. You made sure of that, didn't you? He looked a bit worried. He needn't have been. I was over him a long time ago, but it didn't hurt to keep him on his toes. He started to walk away. An actual chess-playing dog? I asked, 
<laughs> he knew he was off the hook. Sometimes it even wins. Well, it's just amazing it can play at all, I said. He was about three desks away by now. He turned back to me, smiling. Damn it. It was his smile that had got to me. Well, to tell you the truth, it picks up pieces and drops them on the board and his owner places them on the square, he says, they landed on. What a bloody joke, he said laughing. He moved a few steps closer to me. Who are you talking to next? he asked. I took my hair out of the ponytail I wore when I was working. I knew he'd misinterpret the action. I certainly hoped so. Australia's sweetheart, I said. Hayden Alexander. I stroked my hair. He was staring. I've heard he doesn't talk to anyone these days, he said eventually. Yeah, I said, flicking my hair back over my shoulder. I've heard that too, but I have a connection. Cindy Anderson was the den mother of Sydney's strays, Mary McKillop's compassion with Clive Palmer's tenacity and Clive Palmer's intellect. I'll leave you to work out what that looked like in a 73-year-old remnant of Sydney high society. She owed me a favour for a feature I did on her a year earlier when she was kicking off her foundation. I'd made some connections for her, opened a few doors. She could open one for me now. Darling, she exclaimed when she saw me. It was all arm-touching, cheap scent, hand-clasping and air-kisses for what felt like an hour. Finally, we sat down. I took the lemonade she offered. She had a tall glass as well, but even though it was just after nine in the morning, I doubted hers was as innocent as mine. I gave her an overview. I heard all about Ali, of course, she said. Beautiful, awful man that he was. Such a flirt, darling. Absolutely incorrigible. Never wanted to believe he'd done any more than that, although one wonders, of course, doesn't one? I nodded and sipped my drink. She sweeped half of hers. I want to talk to Hayden, I said. Friends tell me you're still pretty close. She shook her head. He's a total hermit, darling. An actual recluse, truth be told. It's enough for me to get him on the phone. Well, I need him for the story, I insisted. She reached into her bag and pulled out a vape. Hope you don't mind, she said. I've given up the dreaded gaspers thanks to these. She sucked deeply, then exhaled, and we were instantly surrounded in a thick mist that smelled alarmingly of strawberries. What strange times we live in, darling, she said. She offered it to me, but I shook my head. What about as a tribute to Alistair, I asked. You think you could work that angle with him? She vaped again, appearing to think. Possibly she was thinking. What's in it for me? She asked after a while. Well, it's too early for another feature, but we could probably do a straight news piece on the foundation. How's it going, by the way? They keep damaging the street rats and sending them to us. We keep patching them up and sending them back out. One surprised us all and graduated uni the other week. You could do a story on her. Hmm. Sounds like a plan, I said. I left my glass practically untouched on the table. Hers was already empty. Hayden's house was forbidding like set of a scary movie forbidding. 
a huge, old, ivy-covered, run-down sandstone mansion in Castlecrag. It had taken three calls to get him to agree to meet me. Even then, his reluctance was palpable. He was only doing it for Alistair. It was to be off the record, and I only had 15 minutes. 15 minutes? I reckoned I could skewer him in 10. Sometimes when you meet famous people, they look totally different to what you've seen on the screen. Hayden was like that. If I'd have walked past him in the street, I wouldn't have recognised him. His face gradually moulded itself into familiarity as we spoke, though. He'd aged, of course. His hair was still long, but was thinner, like his skin. There hadn't been any work done on the garden for decades. We went indoors. I looked around. The inside of the house wasn't in any better state than the exterior. Reeked of stale tobacco. I'm the last of the real smokers, he proclaimed. Before I could comment, he lit up and drew back deeply. I thought it was a mannerism, something to prove his claim. But as we spoke, and he had more, I saw that he smoked all of them in the same desperate way. I had a woman to clean, he said. When she died, I didn't want to find another. Really, what's the point? He sucked deeply on his cigarette again as he led me to his lounge room. We sat in opposite recliners. I glanced around the room. This was where old furniture came to die, I thought. This is what hell looked like for peace lilies. You have some intrusive questions you want to ask, don't you? Choose wisely, you're on a time limit, and this is all totally off the record. If you print one word as a quote, I will sue you. Your newspaper, the company that owns your newspaper, and the company that owns that one. See if I don't. He brushed his fringe away from his face. His eyes were tiny, bright pins of light. He looked at his watch. All right, I said, an armistice of the formalities. Where did you meet? I asked. It seemed a good place to start. We met when I was beautiful, he said. Precious youth in full bloom. Hair like a waterfall, pet. Skin like a ripe peach. I was a ripe peach. He was an artist. I was a poet. We were the perfect combination. This was the art scene in Sydney in the 70s, I asked. He nodded. But you weren't monogamous, I asked. He actually laughed. There was a part of a cough lurking in there as well. What, my dear, is monogamy? Monogamy is for the unevolved, the jealous and the artless. The proles do monogamy, pet. We do art, and whomever is next to us, if they're remotely attractive. And so many were in those long lost days, you see. But you loved Alistair, I asked. Love is not a constraint. Love is freedom. Love is being together at the end of the evening, pet, after the physical excesses are expended. Love is a desire to hold and be held. It has nothing to do with down there. He indicated his groin. The way he said it, it sounded almost naive, childlike, a schoolboy talking. My phone was recording, although I hadn't told him, of course. It was illegal without his permission, but I didn't want to miss a word. How old were you when you met? I asked. I made sure I was looking right at him. My heart was beating quickly. His eyes lit up, petrol on a fire. I kept mine set so they stared right back. I was brutal. 
I'd claimed the integrity high ground and he was forced to look away. These are my lovers now, he said, lighting another cigarette, once more sucking determinedly. Mark is an airline pilot. Mark visits sometimes. Mark brings me cigarettes from overseas. The cigarettes Mark brings me are unconstrained by Australian government cruelty, darling. They are outlaw cigarettes. They have levels of tar and nicotine that make Australian cigarettes blush. He took another draw. I was still staring at him. Would you like one? He asked. Picking up the packet, I shook my head. Age is an illusion, he said after another minute. I knew young boys who were old men and men who were children. Einstein claimed relativity for the physicists. I claim it for the artists. My mind was racing to match my heart. That's not true, though, is it? I asked. Time has a reality, too, in our world. Alistair was 20 years older than you. How old were you the night you met, when you first slept together? Same question, he answered shrilly. He ashed on the carpet, didn't even attempt to use the overflowing coffee mug, already stuffed full of butts and right next to him. He wanted the drama of the gesture, I realised. The disdain of it. Lack of care, antagonism even. We met and slept in each other's arms on the first night. It was my awakening, pet. Have you ever been awakened? Would you even tell me if you had? Well, this is not about me, I said. You will not make Alistair a monster, he replied. I will only speak to protect him. I have other names, I said. I talked to Darren Stevens two days ago. He gave me a list of boys as long as your arm, I lied. Hayden shrugged. What if there was? But that was in another country, and besides, the wench is dead. Do you know your Elliot? I don't suppose you do, given your age. Portrait of a lady, I replied. He's actually quoting Marlowe. Who's ever read Marlowe? he asked. For a moment, I thought he was going to smile. Instead, he lit yet another cigarette with the dying body of the last. This way I make them eternal, he said. We smoke as we have always smoked because we live by our rules. I think he meant to sound convincing and strong, but he faltered. All over the world, others are being punished for the actions of their pasts, I said. They're being held to account. Why should it be any different with Alistair? He took from Darren, he took from the other boys, he took from you. Hayden smoked silently. His chair was deliberately positioned in the shadows, I noticed. It was about the work, he said eventually. His voice was little more than a whisper. When they kill the artists, they kill their work as well, pet. Go on, I said. Everything's context, isn't it, he said. Or it should be. People are too quick to forget the nuance. They say there is no nuance, but there is always a nuance. Or do they want to kill that as well? He sniffed and looked around. I wondered what he was looking for. We're all accountable, aren't we? I asked. Why should it be different for artists, or priests, or prime ministers for that matter? This time he did smile. I don't want Ali dragged into the muck of accusation, he said. To become that artist, to have his work diminished by his sins. That's already happened, Hayden. What does it even matter now? He asked. Ali's gone. My friend is dead. There were tears in his eyes. 
I was surprised by the tears. I was 14, he said. We met when I was 14. At reporter school, they taught us the skill of silence and stillness. So I listened, immobile, thinking of the little tape recorder wheels silently turning inside my phone. All right, he's a murderer then, he said. He killed Darren and that awful boy Gideon and a hundred others. Now it seems he'll kill Adonis as well. It wasn't meant to be like this. It was meant to be about freedom. It was meant to be about experience and charm, not exploitation and greed and deceit. Believe me, Pat, some of us grew by his rules, although undeniably some perished. Did you grow? I asked. He looked to the window again. I stayed quiet, desperately hoping. The last cigarette was out. He curled up in his armchair and shut his eyes. He seemed smaller than when I'd walked in. I wondered whether I should leave. His eyes opened again. It was meant to grow grander, not more tawdry, he said. That's all it is now. Faded glory, decay, the fallen empire, ash, dust, lost rings and sharp bones. The children grown up and out of home. They took their inheritance with them. I watched him. Water in many forms. Fog and mould and rising damp and rust. He was composing, I realised. Composing poetry he would never write. Eyes shut again. The end of a bender, I realised. Sure enough, soon asleep. I walked back through the kitchen. Dirty glasses. So many empty bottles. A cat startled me. It was sniffing around an empty bowl. Of course there'd be a cat. I was half surprised there weren't more. There were two tins of whiskers in the cupboard, not much else. I shuddered. The cat twisted around my legs, mewling as I opened a can and dumped it in its bowl. For good measure, I gave it the second one as well. The cat could have it before Hayden. Bones and lost jewellery, I thought. Dirty water. And hungry cats. On a whim, I wrote, the right to smile in the dust on the kitchen table. Then I went home. I should have watched TV, had a few glasses of red and a load of carbs, but... What I shouldn't have done was gone to my laptop to work on the story. It meant I was lying in bed, wired, at 3am. I now had two witnesses to Alistair Muley's abuse, not just sex with young boys, but a trail of destruction. He'd been a hurricane in their lives, he'd left them flattened. It seemed common knowledge that some had died because of it, either by suicide or drugs. Darren wouldn't talk fully because it provided police with a motive for him being Muley's killer, and Hayden wouldn't talk out of misguided love. I got up, dressed in my tracksuit, and went for a run. The city was quiet. I kept to the streets and away from the park. A few people on their way home. Even one other runner. Quite large, breathing hard. I felt superior as I cruised past him. We can be so judgmental.
I showered when I got home and then took a Valium. I didn't want to be too groggy in the morning, but I was going to be stuffed anyway and it was better to have some sleep. Former Detective Inspector Jim Finlayson had had a good relationship with my dad. I remembered him from a few family barbecues before my parents split. Mum didn't have much to do with any of Dad's friends after that, and that meant neither did we. I ran into Jim once before he retired, though, and he'd given me his number. It seemed like now would be a good time to ring him. He wasn't well, but said he'd see me. You could tell he was on the way out. He'd lost a stack of weight. He didn't smoke anymore, but his fingers and beard were stained bile yellow. His cough was a monument. Even though we'd talked briefly on the phone before I'd gone out there, when I arrived he seemed confused for a little while. I was worried he'd ask after Dad, who'd been dead for 12 years. But after he sucked on some oxygen, he became clearer. His wife, more accurately second wife, yay, cleaned up around us. I looked for photos of his kids, but all I saw were snaps of Jim and Ye on various beaches. There were two parts of his life, I realised. The first was historical and contained his children and the woman I remembered as his wife, Denise. I was definitely of that era. The second was only Ye. How would it be with me intruding now, I wondered. Would worlds collide? Matter and antimatter? Do you want a tea? He asked. Oh, that'd be nice, Jim. Yay walked into the kitchen without saying anything. I don't get many visitors these days, he said. Even the kids don't come. Bastards all cut me when I married Yay. Didn't mind that I'd been dealing with years of shit with that two-timing bitch Denny. Ah, don't care anymore. I'll have the last laugh when they see the bloody will. I'd liked his family. They'd always been nice to me. But then I hadn't seen them for two decades. Who knew? Maybe they were bastards. Ask your questions, Jim said. To tell you the truth, I'm tired, love. I nap twice a day. Alistair Muley, I said. I wondered if I needed to say more. Jim looked up. The artist, he asked. Yeah. Kitty fiddler forever. Right from when he first came on our radar back in the dark ages. Really? It's not on the record, though. He shook his head. Of course not, he said. First, who cared about that sort of thing back then when they were all up to their necks in it? Second, it was all covered up because they were all up to their necks in it. We could have gone after him, but whenever a high up heard a whisper, they shut us down quick smart. How high up? He laughed, full of phlegm. <laughs> How high do you want to go? He coughed for a while, then took more oxygen. Yay brought us mugs of tea. My father would have said it was weak as piss. My mum would have put it down politely and complained later in the car about it being dishwater. Jim watched as I took small sips. He knows his world is imperfect, I thought. He knows Yay fails the tea test. Probably other tests as well. Bet she doesn't know her way around a good roast. I conceded there might be some tests she excelled in. Any evidence? I asked. Nah, he said. Witness statements, but it was all their word against his kind of stuff. These days it'd be phone footage, CCTV, computer files, secret audio, but there was nothing back then. I tell you what was bad, though because it wasn't just a procession of flaming damaged boys. There were parents who genuinely loved their kids who couldn't understand what had happened to them. There was one father, I remember, George, somebody. Some wog name. Sorry, I know I shouldn't say that these days. Polynopolis or some Greek name. He had it out with Muley one night, wanted to kill him. 
would have probably if Uniform hadn't dragged him away. Then two days later, he was at the bottom of the gap. Killed himself. Bullshit, he killed himself. Guarantee he was thrown off to shut him up. I looked at Jim. It was different back then, he said. All it would have taken was a call to the right person and some cash. I actually pushed for an inquiry in that one. A cover-up is one thing, but murder... It got stomped on before I could even start. I was told the rest of my career would be limited to investigating kangaroo shit in Broken Hill if I kept going. He looked at the mug he was holding, then put it down. Yay was back in the kitchen. Her tea is undeniable shit, he said. Sorry about that. That's all right. I lied. He took some more oxygen. Would you go on the record now? I asked. If there was a case against Muley or even just a newspaper story? He looked at me, his eyes suddenly misty. I'm not going to be around long enough. Besides, who's going to believe me? Not with my record. Too many fit-ups, drop guns, verbals. Imagine me being wheeled into court. They'd be lining up to put the boot in. My kids would be at the front of the queue. Ah, sorry, love. He looked so small, sitting in his huge recliner chair in his baggy dressing gown and slippers. I remembered him as being much bigger. The skin on his ankles was mottled, red and purple patches. Ye might be crap at making tea, but she'd married him and part of her job wouldn't be pretty. Ah, I should go, I said. He nodded. Thanks for coming, he said. It's nice to see a familiar face. Like I said, not many visit. Sorry I had so many questions, I said. Sorry I couldn't do more, he said. He looked at me. Your dad? He asked. It was sudden, I said. Hot, playing golf. We all told him it was too hot, but he went out anyway. Ah, he was the original stubborn bastard, your old man. That made me smile. I'd say you got some of his stubborn genes, he said. Maybe, I admitted. Ye was back in the room, standing near to Jim. Full protective mode, I realised. Like I was going to launch a missile at the last minute. I ignored her and went over and kissed Jim on the cheek. He took my hand for a second. See you, love. Come out again, will you? Of course, I told him. He didn't want me back. And I was never going to return. I wasn't even off the small veranda before I heard Ye going off at him. Poor bloke, I thought. Poor Jim. Poor bent cop. Missing family, oxygen-dependent, dying man. The shouting continued all the way to my car. For all I know, she's still shouting. I had three missed calls and a text from Joel. One word. Office. He rarely summoned. I flew to car park near the building and caught the lift upstairs. He stood when he saw me. He started grinning. He held up a USB. You're going to want to have a look at this. I went to grab it and he pulled his hand away. Asshole, I said. He said, don't be so mean. I was only joking. He tossed it to me. What is it? Video for your story, he said. I started walking away. Yeah, don't say thanks, he said. 
Thanks, I called out. Maybe I shouldn't have been so mean, but I was in a crap mood after seeing Jim. I watched 30 seconds of the video and flew back to Joel. Where the hell did this come from? Oh, now you're being nice. I just glared at him. Courier this morning, he said. I have a mate in forensics. I think it was sent by her. She knows how lenient the cops have been to Muley over the years. I went back to my desk. I found some headphones. I half thought of writing a do not freaking even think of disturbing me sign but didn't. It'd only take one look at me for the message to get across. Then I hit play. Alistair Muley's face filled the screen, not the golden-haired cherub face of his youth, but the mature version, hardly less attractive. His face had grown noble, patrician even. His hair was styled and still blonde. The teeth were straighter, of course. His skin glowed. His contemporaries were all physical wrecks, and he bloody shone. Starting a blog, he said, downing something that presumably was terrifically healthy, green and thick. I want to set the record straight, you see. When I was young, when I was a child, some terrible things happened to me. More than once, actually. I don't want to give them power by naming them. You can name them if you want. Think of the horrible things that can happen to children. I've chosen not to be defined by them, you see. Why should I be trapped in history? Why should those who inflicted those things be allowed power over me? He'd walked out onto his balcony, a stunning view of an expansive garden beyond the steamy mist line of the harbour. I built my life from the ashes, chose to be a survivor, not a victim. And then a look right down the barrel of the camera. Life is about choices. We all have strength, but we select our responses. The screen went black. I wondered what I'd just seen. My own eyes were damp. He had been earnest and caring and real. He'd been lying through his teeth the whole time. Grooming all of us. I knew the basis of his words were genuine, but he'd belittled them. I tore the USB out of the computer and grabbed my keys. Hey, what are you doing? Joel yelled. Go to hell! I shouted back. I got into the car and drove too fast, shouted at the stupid, screamed frustration, banged at the wheel. I waited half an hour in the bar. I had two scotches. I smoothed my hair and scrolled on my phone. You okay, doll? Tony asked after she'd sat, after she'd preened unnecessarily for a moment and we'd ordered two more glasses. I told her the whole story. Her eyes lit up when she heard about the USB. Do you have it? She asked. I passed it over. It doesn't mention Darren specifically, I reminded her. Tony plugged the USB into her laptop and watched the short, arrogant clip. What do you think? I asked. She looked at me. You're really a childhood's ideal, she said. I suppose we all have the option to be a victim or a survivor. He's right about that. They're not always the same choice, of course. If you'll indulge me in a cricketing metaphor, some come to the bowl increase of choice from a much longer run-up. From what we've just seen, Muley himself faced that choice after God knows what in his own childhood. But he imposed some of his pain on others, though. He had the choice not to do that, I said. A true survivor, I would suggest, works to build on the pain they experienced in order to become more protective of others, not less, she said. 
So where did this leave my story, I wondered. Should I tell it as I now knew it and risk Darren being convicted? Should I try to keep him out of jail because of his crap childhood, even though he'd probably killed someone, even if in a fit of revenge for a life destroyed? I'd kill Darren and I'd kill Muley too, and if Muley died, did that kill Adonis as well? No, I thought. Muley had done that. I would just be the one who revealed it. My ice cubes were sitting high and dry, while Tony's were still floating gracefully. Unasked, the waiter brought me another drink. I half thought of asking for his phone number. I could love a man like that. Muley was a groomer and used his words and his charms for evil, Tony said. He was a devious, cunning, damaged man. Some good came from him, but not nearly as much as there should have been. The next morning, I pulled up in the jail car park. I had to see Darren before the story came out. He was owed that, if he was owed anything. I waited at the table, my pile of coins in front of me like a tiny can. He came in, walking annoyingly slowly. I told him what I'd written. I knew it would impact his defence, but someone had to tell the truth, didn't they? He looked up at me. The eyes were brighter, more life there than I remember. Did you give money to my brother? He asked. We've made arrangements, yes, I told him. Can I ask why, when you have so little, you want it to go to him? He's pretty well off from what I know. I owe him, he said. I'm not a bad person, I pay my debts. Right, I said. I realised he had choices too. I brought him more chocolate. Like last time he woofed it down, unlike last time, this time he seemed to be enjoying it, not just eating it before someone else did. It's not bad in here, he said. I've met a nice bloke, he's pretty high up the ladder, he takes care of me. The tucker's okay too, and I'm sleeping good. Was that all he needed? To feel cared for? To feel safe? That's all any of us want, isn't it? You don't mind if the story affects your trial? I asked. He shrugged. After what that bastard Muley did to me, he deserved everything that came to him. My only regret was that I waited so long. So you're changing your plea? I asked. You're guilty? I wondered what he'd choose. <laughs> oh yeah, he said. I'm as guilty as hell. That was Nadine Gardner reading Help. It was recorded on Wurundjeri Country at Hope Street Studios in Brunswick, Melbourne. Thanks, Rob. Trevor Brown did the music. By did, I mean composed and performed it. Fantastic. 
Hey, I've been told it's really important to build subscribers, so can you please like the show and follow it on whatever platform you're using to listen to it? It'll make a big difference. Ear Movies are written and produced by me, Simon Luckhurst. Thanks for listening.